you have a Bible with you, if you would open to James chapter 1. Most of you know by now we are studying the book of James under the title, Living Up to Your Faith. You notice that I've been doing just one little pericope every week, a little paragraph every week. I'm trying to hurry through this a little bit uh, quicker than we did Revelation, but I'm, I'm not going to go that fast so that we don't mine out the truth that's in here. We'll hit some major sections that might take a couple of weeks to get through, but for the most part, I want to sort of keep things moving so we have the big picture of what James is saying in our minds. He's saying, in, in, in essence, live up to your faith. And again and again, he says to the readers, you say you believe in God. Uh, you say that he's your Messiah, but now you need to live up to that. You need to think and behave and trust as if you really do believe. And we'll see this again and again in James where he's saying, you're saying it this way or thinking it this way, but that's not the way to think. That's not the way to say it. Do it this way instead. Go to this path, not that path. So the first thing James tells these believers who have been uh, uh, un, you know, willingly scattered throughout the empire, far from their homeland, mostly because of persecution for their faith, is that they need to embrace their various trials joyfully, which is counterintuitive. But they're told to do this because they should recognize God's will in those trials. He's growing them and teaching them throughout those trials. And it's not just because we're putting a band-aid on our trials by saying these things to make it seem okay that we're going through trials. This really is what God is doing. And so he says, embrace your trials joyfully. Last week, we looked at the next section, the next little pericope or paragraph, uh, which reads much like the book of Proverbs and other wisdom literature. James says, uh, when you uh, need to ask God for wisdom, ask him sincerely. When you need to know what path to take, when your life is thrown into chaos because of trials or you have a difficult decision, then seek God, but do it sincerely. Seek Him with no hidden motives. Seek Him for real. Say yes in your heart to God, even as you're calling upon Him before you even really understand what it is He wants you to do. Don't just go through motions. Don't, don't have the attitude, you know, I'll obey God, but I'm when you, I need to see what that is first. Then I'll make sure it fits into my plans and that it, it doesn't stretch me too much. God sincerely pours out his wisdom upon our lives with no fine print. But first, we need to ask with no fine print. So embrace your trials joyfully and ask God for wisdom sincerely. And this morning, I'm titling this section, Celebrate Your Life Wisely. That is what God is doing in your life, what we sometimes call the quality of your life. What happens in your life as you commit yourself to following the Lord's will? Celebrate the circumstances of your life that God allows you to walk through as you are following Him. Now, let's see if that makes sense to you as we look at the text. So, verses 9 through 12 of James 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. In other words, let him celebrate it. Let him make much of it. And the rich, let him celebrate, let him boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he, that's the rich man, will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There's a story about a wise Chinese farmer. I don't know why he's a Chinese farmer. Just roll with that. That's all I've heard it as. Uh, But his horse runs away. And all the neighbors of the village crowd around him to cover him. And they're like, we're so sorry you, you lost your horse. That is so bad. And the Chinese farmer just said, well, perhaps it's bad. Well, the next day, the farmer's horse came galloping back to the farm, bringing seven wild horses with it. And the farmer put them in the corral. And that night, the neighbors came around and they said, wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Now you have eight horses instead of only one. That is so good. And the Chinese farmer said, well, perhaps it's good. Well, the next day or two later, the farmer's son was breaking in one of the new horses and the horse bucked him off and he fell and he broke his leg. So the neighbors came over to express their concern. They said, we're sorry to hear about your son. Is he okay? That is so bad. And the Chinese farmer wisely said, perhaps it's bad. Well, the day after that, representatives from the military suddenly came to the village to draft young men for the emperor's army. But when the soldiers came to the farmer's house, they took one look at the farmer's son and said, he can't be taken. Just leave him here. And later, the night, the, later in that night, the farmer's neighbors came over and they said, we're so thankful that your son did not get conscripted into the army. That is so good. And of course, the Chinese farmer said, perhaps it is good. Now, I could keep going, but I'm not going to keep you know, on and on and on. This, you know, this is like give your mouth a cookie, you know what I'm talking about? We could keep going and going and going. But aren't we often like these villagers? We think that we are so wise that we know enough about our lives and what God is doing in the world that we can judge whether a situation is bad or good in our lives. We can judge whether the circumstance is so good or it's so bad. How often have we said, oh no, that is so bad. Or, oh, praise the Lord, that's so good. That's what you hear when we hear testimony times. What, what we, we perceive that God has done that's good. And often we do know that God is doing good things. There's no doubt about that. And we should rejoice. But we say all these things as if we know that the surprised or unexpected events that occur in our lives represent either a path leading to blessing or a path leading to trouble. As if we know, apart from divine revelation, that the general circumstances of our lives are good or bad. Now, James is writing to offer God's wisdom to those believers who were scattered, many of them, had to leave their homes in a hurry. We talked about this. Their families who were, were perhaps well off, they were established in Jerusalem, but they had embraced Christ as their Messiah and they were driven away by people who hated the idea of a crucified Messiah. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, they begin to suffer tremendously because Stephen, remember, had been stoned to death at the end of chapter 7. He was executed for his faith by the charge of blasphemy. And that emboldened the Jewish leaders wanting to stamp out those who were following this way as fast as they could. So families starting to flee the area. They wanted to get to safety for their children. And they were probably tempted to say, this is so bad. 
I mean, why would God allow this? Why wouldn't he just let his church flourish and the enemy be conquered and, and they could set up the kingdom right there? But in Acts 8, 4, it says that as a result of the scattering of God's people through persecution, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And when we pick up this story all the way in chapter 11, starting in verse 19, it says those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke also to the Hellenists. These are Jewish, but they're in Greek in culture. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas was in Jerusalem. They sent him to Antioch. So when he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to look for Saul at Tarsus. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We then pick up the story further in Acts chapter 13, where the church in Antioch is praying and the Holy Spirit says, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I am sending them to. And Paul and, and, and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries. So now we see this, this full picture, and it's only part of the story. We, we never get to see except a little bit of the story. But there's this wrongful martyrdom of Stephen. It was atrocious what they did to him. And the scattering of the church, these people had to leave their homes, they had to leave their things, they had to start living in poverty, some of them. But the gospel was proclaimed and embraced as far as Antioch. And then you have the ministry of Barnabas there and the decision to recruit the Apostle Paul and the whole Gentile mission begins in Acts 13. And we could trace Paul's ministry through Acts and show how his ministry always led to suffering, which always led to greater proclamation of the word. In fact, if you read Acts that way, you'll see this pattern again and again. In fact, we go back just to one chapter. You, the, the book of Acts Verse, uh, chapter 12 is really a microcosm of this whole thing. At the beginning, James, the son of Zebedee, one of the apostles, is killed with a, with a spear by Herod uh, Agrippa I. That's Herod the Great's grandson. And he imprisoned Peter, and he's about to bring him out and have him executed the next day. But Acts 12 ends with Peter freed, Herod Agrippa dead, and Luke says in Acts 12, 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. So like a huge stone thrown into a pond, trials have a ripple effect. The good providence of God always leads to God's glory through trial and always leads to his people's good. And we are not in a position to really know what all of those ripples will spread and, and do which is to say, once again, we're not in a position outside of divine revelation to be able to say, this is good or this is so bad. We know that God is providentially leading because the Bible says so. But we do not always know how or why God providentially leads. Now, remember what wisdom is in the Bible and, and James is wisdom literature. We've seen this. Wisdom is the willingness to obey God by walking down the path he's laid out for us. 
We can see the beginning of the path. We can even see some of the, the middle of the path. But the right path is often the most difficult. And so sometimes we, we sort of hesitate when we see some of that path. But what we really don't know is the end of the path. We don't. We haven't lived it yet. We have to trust God for His wisdom to know what's at the end of that path. And what God is telling us here in this passage is celebrate your life wisely. In other words, thinking through carefully how God is instructing us. To celebrate something is to magnify it, is to make much of it, is to affirm it, to say that's good. And here in this passage, the wisdom of God points our attention to the ultimate end of life and calls us to respond to our present situation, whatever it is, in light of what God is ultimately doing. So what are those ways that the text calls us to respond to our life? Well, the first is in verse 9. Here he tells the lowly, celebrate the reversal of your poverty. Now, you got to track with me here, okay? This was not a very easy text to unpack, all right? So if you disagree with me when we're at the end, you can talk to me later, okay? Uh, but but I, I think you can see this here. The first thing he's saying is celebrate the reversal of your poverty because he says, and I'll put the section up there from verse 9, uh, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The lowly brother is the brother or sister that we see so often in Scripture, and the reason the person is called lowly is due to his social status. He or she is poor, poverty-stricken, of humble means. Perhaps not the worst-case scenario, but heading in that direction. And you have to understand that in the world of the New Testament, there were the very rich and there were the very poor, and not a lot of people in between. There was no middle-class America like we have here. In fact, most of us, I would, in fact, I would, I would dare say every single one of us here would be viewed in the first century as being very much on the rich end of the continuum. In fact, in most countries in the world, we would be viewed as very rich on that continuum. So we don't really understand lowly like they did. There were the poor who worked every day in order to be able to eat and feed their families the next day. They would work in the shops and in fields and produce surplus for those who owned the shops and the fields. They were seldom allowed to keep any of the surplus, plus they had to pay taxes still, a lot of them. But then there was a level of poverty below that in which people were reduced not only to working each day so they could eat the next, but actually to begging each day so they could eat the next. Think of Lazarus and the rich man. Luke says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. Typical rich man in the first century in that culture. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Very typical scene for the lowly. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. In contrast to Lazarus, notice the rich man. He's described as clothed in rich garments and having an abundance of food to eat. This was, this was not an uncommon income gap or social status gap. The rich had money pouring in from investments and large you know, land that, that was being worked. And they did not have to think about what they were going to do in order to live the next day. They would be able to give themselves to other things like politics and, and leisure and, and so forth. 
Now, who in their right mind would want to trade places with Lazarus to be on that side of the poverty scale? Given a choice, who would want to be lowly, with no wealth, with no influence, with no resources? And yet James says that the rich person should boast or be glad about or celebrate his condition. But notice, very, very, very much like the first pericope, the first paragraph we looked at about trials, he's not saying that the lowly brother should celebrate his poverty or his humble estate. What does he say? He says that the lowly ought to boast in his exaltation. What is his exaltation? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Uh, it may be that James is referring to the fact that believers who are poor in earthly conditions are nevertheless rich in spiritual blessings. That is true. The Bible teaches that in many different places. In fact, one commentator says that he thinks chapter nine, or verse 9 is based on Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, which says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight declares the Lord. And it's certainly true that even if you have wisdom and might and riches, this is really nothing in comparison to the knowledge of God. You are far off being dirt poor and knowing God than being king of the world, but ignorant of true life in him. However, it seems to me that James focuses the exaltation of the poor on the life to come. For example, he says in James 2, 5, Hath not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? That's the coming kingdom. Which he has promised to those who love him. The kingdom that the Jews had been promised and that they had been anticipating for centuries. And in chapter 5, James assures the impoverished, helpless believers who had been taken advantage of by the rich people of the world that God is going to judge those who have hurt them and that their riches will perish with them. But then he turns to comfort the believers, not by promising that their situation is going to improve in this life, but that their hope is in the great reversal of that which will take place when the Lord returns. So he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how, oh, there we are, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's our hope. But there's another reason, I think a more immediate reason that the exaltation of James is really eschatological. It's, it's, he's talking about the final hope of believers. And I think it's right, it's because of verse 12. I never, until I went and studied this text this week, would have put verse 12 actually with verses 9 through 11. But I think it follows so closely. And it saves me one more sermon to preach because I can, I can uh, put it in with, with these verses this morning. But notice what James says. Right after he tells the poor to celebrate his exaltation and the rich's humiliation, he said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
This is the great exaltation that those who appear to be of little worth, of no account, who possess so little of the, re- of the world's resources that they are overlooked, they're undervalued, they will be highly exalted with the Lord in so short a time. James says, establish your hearts, be encouraged, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And he says in chapter 4, verse 14, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We may feel the pressure and pain and humiliation of having very little in this life, but soon, in fact, really, honestly, so soon, I think the older you live, the, the more you think this, so soon, this life will be a distant memory and we will be exalted, lifted up, raised to an indescribable, glorious life forever with Christ. So James says, celebrate, rejoice, be glad in that. If if we look at the world in terms of wealth and poverty, then uh, those who are lowly but know the Lord, they are on a trajectory for untold eternal riches. They stand to inherit. And this should greatly impact the way we view our situation in this present world. On the other hand, those who are considered rich in this life, James says, are on a different trajectory. They are on their way from wealth to poverty. And that's what brings us to the next verse, verse 10. If James instructs the lowly to celebrate the reversal of their poverty, to boast in their exaltation, then he tells the rich to celebrate the reversal of their wealth. So in verse 10, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now we need to stop there for just a minute and press pause because there's something really tricky going on in this text. Who are these rich people? Because like in all good writers who use words economically, and James is certainly one of those, especially in wisdom literature, James obviously intends for us to fill in the blank here. But it's not entirely clear what goes in the blank. And I'll show you exactly what I mean. Uh, the second line obviously wants the reader to fill in the verb, right? So he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation. That's what it means. And that's, that's an elliptical idea, right? Those of you who read literature and, and, and study English and that kind of thing, you, you don't have to repeat every single word all the time. We, our brains fill it in. We know the context. We know what is being said. But is that all that James wants the reader to fill in? Or does he intend for the text to even be more parallel in these two lines? Does James want the reader to read this? Let the rich brother boast in his humiliation as well as uh, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. You see the parallelism there? So this is a really good question. Is James thinking about rich believers or rich unbelievers. Now, some say rich unbelievers because James is not too keen on rich people in the letter. You've read the letter, right? He's down on them often. In in James 2, 6 through 7, James says, it's the rich people who oppress you and drag you into court and blaspheme God's name. Why are you giving them preference when they come into the synagogue? 
to, to sit with you. Why do you say, oh, you're poor, you sit over here. You're rich, you sit up here so you can be recognized. Why do you do that? These are the guys who are after you, he says. We'll get there eventually. He, he says in, in chapter five, verses four through six, that the rich have further impoverished them by not paying their wages while they live, the rich live in luxury and self-indulgence and they've even condemned and murdered the righteous, he says in chapter five. If this is true, if this is an unbelieving rich person who is going to eternal judgment, then James is being ironic here. He's saying the righteous poor have something to glory in, namely the fact that one day they'll be exalted. But the only thing the unrighteous have to glory in is the fact that one day they will face God's judgment. So go ahead and boast, you ungodly rich, James might say. God will soon give you something to boast about, and it is not what you were expecting, and it is not what you are going to like. You see what I'm saying here? If, if this is an unbelieving righteous, this is something ironic James is saying to make the parallelism. However, on the other hand, he is not necessarily thinking of the ungodly rich person here. In fact, the verb pass away that you see there at the end of verse 10, uh, this verb is not used in the New Testament for somebody passing away to judgment. There's plenty of verbs that James could have used to indicate judgment. There's not one of them. This is a verb that merely indicates a reversal or a great change. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Same verb. Uh, Paul says, old things are what? Passed away. All things are become new. So you can use this word in those kinds of contexts, but it's not a word that necessarily means judgment. So if we can look at what James says about the rich person in context, what would he mean in verse 10 when he says that he will pass away like the flower of the grass? Well, James explains what he means in verse 11. He's using this image that would be well known to his readers in that part of the world and well known to readers today who live in these very arid, hot countries. Here are some pretty little flowers in the grass, delicate, desirable, beautiful things. But the sun rises with its scorching heat, especially in the summer. And the moisture from the earth cannot overcome the evaporation of the moisture caused by the intense heat. So the sun withers the grass and its flower falls and the beauty goes away. It dries up, it withers. And James says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This word fade away is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. It, it's used in other Greek literature to refer to roses that wilt and dry. You've seen that happen before. Or maybe a flame that goes out, it's used for that as well. And it's all, all that's left is smoldering wood. The point is, earthly riches do not last. They are enjoyed for a little time in this life. And then even unbelievers know you cannot take it with you. So what I think is going on here is that James is saying to the Jews in the dispersion, if you have wealth, your riches will fade. Your ability to use them will go away. What happens when you come to the end of life and you no longer have the health and the energy to even enjoy all the wealth that you have? Or what happens when all of a sudden the Lord says, okay, it's time for you to leave? Like Luke's parable of the rich fool, right? He made these great plans to expand his barn so that he could amass more wealth. And that night in a dream, God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be then? 
Like James says, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Even while he's amassing more wealth, he will fade away. There's a warning here to anyone who is trusting in riches. So if James is saying to the few rich among the believers who are scattered abroad, and there probably would be a few of them, not many. In 1 Corinthians 1, at least, it doesn't say not any rich are chosen. It says not many. Uh, I heard the testimony of one man years ago who said, I was saved by the letter M, <laughs> you know, because he was, he was a wealthy man. And he said, I'm glad God said not many. He didn't say not any. But there would probably be a few rich among them who would be tempted to boast in their riches. And yet, James says, you need to boast in your humiliation, that they need to celebrate the fact that their riches will fade away. Well, why would they do that? I think it's this. James is telling the rich to boast in their humiliation because the temporary nature of something that seems so desirable right now, but is actually drying up, is a profound reminder that eternal riches are the only thing that matters in the end. So I could summarize verses 9 through 11 this way. James says, if you're a poor believer, be encouraged by celebrating the fact that your poverty is a temporary discomfort that will one day disappear in light of your exaltation in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a rich believer, be cautioned, be warned, be sobered, by celebrating the fact that your riches are a temporary comfort that will one day fade away in the humiliation of the end of life. Therefore, you must also put your hope in the greater exaltation. Both the unbelieving, or I should say, both the the rich believer and the lowly believer are still heading for the crown of life, both of them if they know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the celebration of humiliation or exaltation puts the, the, the plan of God in our perspective in the right place. So finally, James called to the lowly to celebrate the reversal of their poverty and his call to the rich to celebrate the reversal of their wealth would be meaningless if it were not for the fact that these believers have an ultimate hope. And that's what I think is going on in verse 12. He says in verse 12, endure at all times till the end. So to the lowly, he gives this advice. To the rich, he gives this advice. To, to To all believers, he says, endure at all times till the end. And we're, we're going to circle around and hit this verse again at some point because this theme goes throughout James. So I'm just going to spend just a few minutes on it this morning. But he says in, in James 1.12, once again, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I, I spent the afternoon uh, in the Dallas Museum uh, a couple of years ago when we were visiting our daughter and son-in-law out there and uh, <laughs> there's certain exhibits they finally have to come and find me and drag me out of. And one of them is the, the Greek exhibit with all of the ancient artifacts and all the pottery. And I have never read this anywhere. Uh, I, I've searched for it a little bit. I can't even really find pictures of it online. But I made a discovery all by myself in, in that museum that day of, of something I never knew before that connects with Scripture. They had all of these large amphora or, or crater. Uh, there are different 
different kinds of Greek pottery that, that, that hold liquid and so forth. Um, and, and they would have artwork all the time on this pottery depicting different things. And some of the pottery was specifically used for uh, the, the burial process. Like they would be buried in the tomb with the people or they would, it, it was an urn that would represent death. And in several of the pictures, the gods were handing the deceased this large laurel wreath, this Stephanos. It's translated in our scripture, a crown. That's what kind of crown it was. The kind they would give at the Olympic Games. If you won the race of the Olympic Games, they would hand you this laurel wreath. It was a symbol of victory. You made it. You won. And, and it, it wasn't the, the wreath. It wasn't that valuable, but it was a symbol of the victory and the honor and the glory that you had won by winning the games. So it makes perfect sense that, I mean, literally hundreds of years, three to, 200 to 300 years before Christ, these urns are being depicted as, as uh, uh, the gods handing those victors this laurel wreath. And James picks up on this. Paul picks up on it. And James says, you remain steadfast. That is obedient. You continue to follow God, even under trials, even when it's hard, even when you are persecuted, even when you wonder if it's worth it all. You remain steadfast under trial. You stand the test and you will receive a real crown. This is not the kind of crown that you receive on earth. This is not the laurel wreath that will fail. You will receive the crown, which is life. You will receive life itself. We want to celebrate whenever we see ourselves moving toward riches and resources. And we want to say, wow, that's so good. And, and when we see ourselves moving toward poverty on the scale, we want to say, oh, that's so bad. I wish that would not have happened. But James says, that's short-sighted. That's not wisdom. That doesn't take into account God's ultimate exaltation. No matter what your circumstances are now, God is moving you toward this ultimate end. Riches and opportunities and accolades can distract us from what is truly exalting. And lowliness and poverty can cause us to take our eyes off the only thing that we know is so good at the end of life. That is why we celebrate our exaltation beyond poverty and the humiliation of earthly riches because we are keeping eternal riches in mind. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13 that he learned to be content in whatever situation he was in. Remember? He said, he said I learned how to be brought low. I learned how to go bound. Uh, I learned in any and every circumstance, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, if he learned this, there was a time that he didn't know it, that he hadn't learned it. Learning is a process of moving from one state to another. So Paul had to learn this. He had to go through circumstances where he said, oh, this is so good. And, and oh, that is so bad. And the Lord taught him contentment. Do you know how the Lord taught him contentment? We have one uh, classroom time from the Apostle Paul's life that we can see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He writes 2 Corinthians before he writes the letter to the Philippians. And he's telling the, the Corinthians about something that happened to him here, which really reflects, I think, in Philippians where it says, I've learned to be content. He says in chapter 12, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
to keep me from coming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, that it should leave me. You know why Paul pleaded for the thorn to be removed three times? Because he was saying to himself, no, no, this is so bad. Lord, think about how freeing it would be for me if I didn't have this thorn to deal with. Think about how much more time, if I didn't have to deal with this issue, that I would have to minister for you. I mean, think about how much more rested I would be. Think about how much more attractive I would be to other people without this stigma, whatever it was. We're not 100% sure what, what Paul's thorn was. But you know what the Lord said? He said, no, no. The thorn remained. As far as we know, all of Paul's life. This is one of those areas where the Lord wanted him to endure. But he didn't have to endure alone because the Lord tells him in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in you through your weakness. So Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast, I will celebrate, I will make much of. That's our verb from James chapter 1. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Now that's counterintuitive. That's what wisdom does. It leads us to do something we wouldn't normally do because God's revealing something to us that we don't understand until we follow him. He says, I will all the more gladly boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you realize here that when Paul is celebrating his weakness, he is celebrating the temporary earthly weakness in light of future deliverance. He's living out James 1, 9 through 12. Do you realize that Paul's personal knowledge of the power of Christ came into his life, his heart, and his mind because the Lord said no to his request? That had the Lord said yes, that Paul would not have deepened in the knowledge of Christ in this way? God doesn't always remove every earthly trial. He removed Job's earthly trial, but he didn't remove the earthly trial of his own son, Jesus. Even though Jesus prayed his own thorn prayer in the garden, and he prayed it three times because he had to wake disciples up, remember? He prayed it three times. But had the Lord Jesus not been unjustly condemned and cruelly put to death by wicked men, the greatest, that's so bad moment in human history, you and I would be lost forever. So if we say we believe in a God with infinite wisdom who will keep his promise to deliver us, then, James says, we should celebrate the life that God has given to us now wisely, being content for God to govern his world and be sovereign over our lives, even though we cannot always predict what is best for us, distracted by neither our riches or our poverty, and to do so with endurance with our eyes on the prize. That is learning to walk wisely in God's world. And this is what James says is living up to our faith. Father, we can...